Well, I'm the homegrown guy, even though I wondered why Southern Baptists would want a guy like me all those years ago. Now that I've been one for so long and seeing the dysfunctionality among us, I fit right in. And I, I suppose Dr. Keithley assigned me uh, the task because um, I think I understand our dysfunctionality so well, being one of us. And so my talk today is as a Southern Baptist to Southern Baptists and trying to learn something from the Galileo affair. So <clears throat> why should we even care about it? Well, it's clear there are a great many reasons, but he is one of the most revered geniuses uh, then and now. Uh, some say he was uh, maybe the smartest, however people do these sorts of measurements. Um, geniuses in intellectual history. Um, in his own day, he had a poem written by, about him and his scientific prowess uh, by a cardinal, uh, Mafio Barberini, who will become a key figure in what we'll talk about a bit later when he is uh, Pope Urban VIII. Uh, he is also, that is Galileo, a key figure in uh, religious epistemology um, discussions because of the issue of reason and revelation. How do they fit together? And more particularly for our subject, um, how can a person think about Bible when um, there is apparent scientific conflict? And more particularly, his um, point about scientists ought to be at the forefront of the discussion, um, not just theologians when it comes to wrestling with biblical texts. He's also an icon um, for those who stand up against religious authorities or even religious bullies. And the whole Galileo affair or trial is certainly an example for the church how not to handle uh, science, theology, conflicts. So his conflict with the Catholic Church is also regarded as the most important of science theology conflicts. And there are many reasons, um, but I want to focus um, on one in particular, and that is a reason why Southern Baptists should care. And that is that we're not known for being particularly adept at handling science and theology conflicts. In fact, we're often perceived, um, I won't say this quite as nicely, is really this wasn't Dr. Murray's intent to refer to us this way. In fact, I felt he was doing just the opposite, but I will do it. I think it's fair to say that we are uh, perceived often as the modern day equivalent of the Vatican pitting biblical authority. And now we've had, even, to make it worse, we've had 400 years of scientific advancement. Um, so, so it is a very key issue for us to think about what can be learned uh, from the Galileo affair. <clears throat> By the way, I will use the term the, uh, science and the term theology most of the time simply as a way to recognize, as did Galileo, um, that there is interpretation going on or there can be errors made in the theorizing uh, of either nature or science. But I also want to point out that the Galileo affair has a very complex 
background history, which we can only talk about a little bit, but it's important that we think about if we're to understand it and learn anything from it. So one of the things is that it was a century, uh, the, the previous century when Copernicus' um, book, which is considered to have launched the modern scientific revolution, On the Revolutions is the title in short, 1543, that, that whole period preceding Galileo and his, um, his getting in trouble with the Catholic Church is very important background as we need to think about and talk about. The new astronomy that was coming uh, to the debate had a significant background, but it's also relevant to us today because modern science, as I mentioned, is commonly dated to the launching of that book, which is really at the heart of the whole debate. So if modern science isn't going away, and um, Southern Baptists who may not be sure about modern science, but seem awfully sure about the Bible, sometimes in not such beautiful ways, and that's not going to go away either, then it is important for us, I think, uh, to think about this so that we can indeed um, figure out how to deal with this ongoing relationship of science and theology. One thing that is clear about Baptists, if much is not, is we are called people of the book, and it is part of our confession. Indeed, the Baptist faith in Message 2000 begins with a an article about the Bible. It says the Bible has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. So, for us to be up to date in the 21st century, should we surrender that view, that actual article of our confession? I don't think Galileo and the lessons we will learn are at all calling for us to do that. In fact, I would argue that he speaks, though dead, to us today as a friend. What to do when it seems that science and theology are in a conflict that seems irresolvable. So, I want to talk about helpful lessons learned some Southern Baptists are aware of. In general, they are recognized widely. But then some lessons that I think are not particularly learned well from the Galileo affair, and they may be the most important or helpful for us as Southern Baptists. So first, let me take a look at this um, underlying astronomy controversy <clears throat> from the previous century. At the dawn of the 16th century, it certainly was the standard view that heavenly bodies orbited um, a stationary Earth at the center of the universe. Why? Well, ordinary perception made that seem obvious. It was also the received astronomy, which worked really well. It had been around for at least 1,500 years. Uh, uh, you could go back further if you wanted to show its relationship to Aristotle. And then, of course, the Bible. In a Christian uh, European setting, it was clear that the Bible speaks of dozen, dozens of times of sunsets and sunrises, allusions to the earth not moving. And then, of course, the famous Joshua T. 
10 passage where we see Joshua's prayer to the Lord uh, that the uh, day would be extended and it describes the sun stopping in its course and this makes it clear that it is the sun moving and not the earth. But the standard astronomy had required a great many artificialities or contrivances to make it work and these have funny names like uh, equants and epicycles and eccentrics and you can go online and see amazing uh, pictures. I apologize, I don't have any cool pictures but it's really a fun thing to look at. There are many examples online to see how absolutely complex it was with these sort of off-centered maybe we could call them orbits in some cases, as a way to make it all work. In fact, King Alfonso in the 13th century famously said, well, if that's what actually is true about astronomy, then I could have given God some pretty good advice at the creation. So Copernicus recognized these um, artificialities about the standard astronomy and he wanted to reconceive it in a way where there weren't so many of these contrivances. And he describes his work um, as one which he found beautiful and the simplicity and the elegance of it. There are certain aesthetic features of it which had attracted him uh, to thinking through the model. And of course there's much more to it than that. But what we do know is there was an incredible, this was an incredible accomplishment for him to reconceive uh, an earth at the center of the universe which uh, rotates on its own axis and it has, um, excuse me, the sun at the center of the universe and the true planet's sequence in their orbits around uh, the sun. It was remarkable. He still had some errors. He had circular orbits and others which required a few of these or at least a number of these um, contrivances he had tried to eliminate and he wasn't really uh, his system wasn't necessarily more accurate. It didn't necessarily work um, better than the old. So it could be said this way. The first generation of thinkers, which are often castigated uh, by people looking back on this, is like, what was the matter with you? Why didn't you accept this beautiful new science? Well, the fact of the matter is it would have been perfectly rational in their day to question or even reject the new astronomy. It would take a century later um, for Kepler uh, to, to come up with the laws of to discover the laws of planetary motion, another century later for uh, the laws of gravitation um, with Isaac Newton to sort of seal the deal. In other words, there are a great many people involved in the process over um, a long period of time before it became really clear in those days regarding this new astronomy. In fact, we'll see that um, Galileo will play an important role in it. And so here's an important point for us to think about. Now, it's, it's not the case that we should automatically assume that every new scientific theory that may trouble us should, should uh, get a pass from us. We can say, I don't care anything about it until uh, my great-great-great-great-grandchildren take a look at it. It's not the point. But it is true that in this first instance and many others 
of science and theology conflicts that will follow, multiple generations needed uh, to think about these things and struggle with this to settle the issue. And so um, we can learn then from the Galileo affair. So what exactly was it? And let me see if I can be as brief as possible here because I want to get to the lessons learned. Initially, that is in the first um, what we might call generation of it or century of it, the 16th, Catholic theologians were not generally opposed to it much. It would be a century or the century later before on the revolution, uh, revolutions would be placed on the index of banned books. But it is true that in the first sort of period of thinking about it, there was a very major incident in uh, the Catholic Church, and that is called the Reformation, and then the Counter-Reformation, as we see in the Council of Trent, that is very much in the background of this whole business. That is to say, what will happen to Galileo um, is under the shadow of a larger debate in the minds of Catholic theologians. In the next generation, Galileo himself becomes a Copernican and helps advance um, the new astronomy with uh, his improvements on the newly discovered telescope. He could see ten times more uh, stars in the night sky, pockmarks on the moon, and so many other things, moving sunspots. But it particularly was somewhat scandalous to many that he uh, observed, and it was published, four moons orbiting Jupiter, showing not everything supposedly orbited the earth. And even more troubling, he could see that Venus had a complete set of phases, which demonstrated that it orbits the sun. And later in his life, as we'll mention, he will uh, do work in physics itself, which will contribute to the work in a following uh, century by Isaac Newton that eventually makes clear that the new astronomy was true. But second-generation theologians among Catholics generally, generally resisted the new astronomy, especially as put forward by Galileo. Uh, he jumped into the fray at exactly the wrong time. It is in the midst, as we've said, of the Counter-Reformation. And he had um, an ego, most would say, who are scholars of his work or of his era, and so, following the Council of Trent, it wasn't a good idea when the Council had decreed that it is not up to non-theologians to issue um, statements about biblical interpretation, that he was not only arguing that this new science was proven, it wasn't really proven yet in his generation. The old was being disproven, but the new wasn't fully demonstrated, to use his words. But he clearly provoked the Vatican by um, claiming that I, that is Galileo, a non-theologian, can uh, hold opinions about the relationship of the Bible when it speaks to this issue. So, Robert Bellarmine that um, Dr. Murray mentioned, who was the most authoritative theologian of the day, he was also member of the congregation, both of the Index and the Inquisition, 
generally regarded as a friendly and fair man, was actually friendly when he was sent to talk to Galileo initially on these issues and said, look, if you will just hold the view hypothetically, that's fine. There's not a problem here so long as you just make it a matter of um, saving the phenomena mathematically, you are, uh, you're fine, you're good to go. Galileo argued, however, back with him that, that it is a, what we might say, he was a realist. I'm not, I'm not using this instrumentally. And moreover, he disagreed with the cardinal, which showed something of um, the intelligence. And at least he thought that he was fairly safe with the intelligentsia of the church as a good son of the church. He said it's not even an article of the faith. Um, it is a minor issue having to do nothing with our salvation and the like. Bellarmine said, look, anything that's in the Bible, and the Bible talks about astronomy, and if it's in the Bible, then in fact, since it's not proven, then we are obligated to stick with the traditional interpretation. And so Bellarmine enjoins Galileo. He orders him never um, believe, which is a remarkable thing to tell someone, you are not to believe this, nor are you to defend that the earth moves rather than the sun. So um, on the revolutions was condemned, um, but Galileo escaped the charge of heresy. However, just a few years later, I guess when I'm pushing the button, it's not doing a very good job, sorry. A few years later, you may remember um, the Cardinal Barberini I mentioned earlier who had been an admirer of the genius, the scientific prowess of Galileo, um, becomes Pope Urban VIII. Now Galileo has a friend in power. And so though he had been... Uh, ordered not to believe in or to teach it, um, he went to the Pope, who apparently does not know about this earlier uh, proscription, and um, they have a discussion about it, and the Pope gives him permission to teach it hypothetically. And one of the famous things in their discussion is the Pope says to Galileo, look, um, isn't it possible God in his greatness could have arranged the heavens such that a scientist or a natural philosopher like you would see it and describe it the way you do, but it could actually be really, as the Bible describes it, a totally different way and have the same phenomena. Well, Galileo, a few years later, would write um, his dialogue on the chief, uh, two chief world systems. I think I got my dates there wrong. And no, it's right on there, but not on my tablet. Which infuriates the Pope and will lead to his famous trial, hence the Galileo affair. Now, the literary masterpiece that he wrote sought to do the very thing that the Pope had given him permission to do. It makes it look like he is only teaching the new science hypothetically. I'm just looking at it. I'm just analyzing it. 
I'm not arguing that it is true. But he refutes very well the objections to Copernicanism. And he has two natural philosophers or scientists debating the merits of the old and the new science. And clearly the new wins the debates and the um, intelligent layman listening, uh, sort of refereeing the thing, makes it pretty clear uh, that uh, Salviati is winning uh, the debate. And what really doesn't help Galileo's case at all is that he puts the losing argument into the mouth. And in fact, even the very idea that the Pope had given him, isn't it possible that it really looks the way you say and you describe in the new astronomy, but God in his wisdom and in power has so made the heavens, they could have the same phenomena just as the, but be as the Bible describes. And he puts it in the mouth of the losing scientist named Simplicio. And it was widely considered that this was intended as a connotation for simpleton. Well, it's not a good way to win friends and influence people to hear your view. And so the printing of the book is suspended and Galileo is called to stand trial. And clearly, you should read about it. Uh, There are so many sources available, but it's intriguing. Maybe we should say you're forbidden to read it. It's important to read it, to learn from it. But it's so interesting, you won't want to not read it once you start. It could be a movie over and over again uh, without any uh, doctoring of it. So he goes on trial and someone produces a document from the Vatican that is obviously based upon the earlier um, document that uh, Cardinal Bellarmine had, had given him but it has been expanded. It's saying, you're not to teach it in any way ever. And and, um, fortunately for Galileo, he had kept his files, so he produced the original. But then he made this audacious remark in his defense. He said, I really intended to refute Copernicanism in this book. I just went too far in the way I handled it. And um, the prosecutor didn't really want to take this um, very famous and beloved uh, Catholic Church hero and and do much with him. And so he struck a plea deal and um, to a lesser charge, and things looked pretty good. But then a deceptive trial report was sent to the Pope and the Cardinals, and um, the result is that Galileo was um, charged with, it's a funny term, vehemently suspected of heresy. It is just a notch below a formal heresy charge. It was a stun Galileo that is then not only learning that his book will be banned, He is forced to renounce his views while kneeling, and he is placed under house arrest and made to feel that he's lucky that's all he got and told he could never write on the issue again. Ironically, a few years later, while under house arrest, he wrote, returning to some of his work he'd done earlier in physics, 
which would lead to uh, helping uh, Isaac Newton in the next century to bring the death knell uh, to the old uh, geocentrism. So, two general lessons that, and there are more historians would point out to us, but there are two that I want to just briefly mention that sometimes are missed by Southern Baptists. One is Galileo is often used as an example and has been, especially since uh, the 19th century, as sort of this brave secular scientist fighting against a bunch of mean bully theologians. And it is just the, um, the obstinance of these backward-minded theologians that are preventing the advance of science. Well, the fact of the matter is that whole Draper White named after the two um, central figures in the late 19th century who wrote books on this that made that view popular were just wrong, and that's widely recognized now. We'll have a, uh, a talk tomorrow, no, it's tonight, actually, about early uh, uh, contributions from Christians and how um, we could even put it this way, everybody involved in this particular controversy claimed that they were loyal to the Bible, that they were Christians. So it is really completely false to say that they were um, secularists, the brave secularists fighting the mean theologians or a non-Christian scientist or something like that. It's just silly. Another point that I think is important to note, and I'll just briefly mention, it's very interesting that in God's providence, in the first century, the science, the new science was promoted by Lutheran scholars, originating out of Wittenberg itself. In fact, names like Redicus and Osiander are part of that story, and even getting the Catholic Copernicus to even publish his book and get it printed. And then none other than the right-hand theologian, the right-hand man of Martin Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon, actually promotes it as well. Now, they didn't fully embrace it. They believed there was merit in studying it. There were things to be learned from it. Melanchthon himself wanted to sort of adapt it to his understanding of the Bible, so he was sort of taking bits and pieces and moving it around. But in his reordering of the German university system, the whole teaching about the new astronomy spread widely and even beyond the borders of Germany and would lead to people like Kepler and a later generation and many others actually embracing uh, this new science. Now, I want to talk then about an important lesson that I think Southern Baptists could learn from that which isn't generally talked about, from the whole Galileo affair. And I think it has to do, of course, with this whole business of knowing how to understand or manage science and theology conflicts while still believing in the Bible, because that was the issue um, that we can see uh, in the writings of Galileo from the time. So I call these, um, I call the principle, I've just come up with a term I took from the world of finance, the theological conservatism principle, and I use marriage terms as a way to think about it. 
The conservatism principle is simply the idea that if you produce financial statements, they should be conservative so the reader won't be misled into thinking your company is healthier than it really is. So make sure the liabilities, if anything, are um, emphasized and uh, income revenue and so on is de-emphasized. And I think this really illustrates what we see in um, the whole business of not just during the time of Galileo, the Galileo affair, but the way that original controversy, the very first big one in the history of science theology, is eventually resolved. And it takes generations, but there are what we might call sort of historical processes going on during those um, long, slow debates. So these three stages, and they're not literally generations, and they're not nice and neat and clean and easy to see, but they are nonetheless, I think, a kind of logical way to understand the way this thing works. So if we're to use marriage terminology to describe them, I would say that in the sort of first generation, these, this science theology conflict generally even in those that were willing to study it and not particularly upset about it, was this just isn't going to work. This isn't something that makes sense biblically, common sense, or with science, even if we're willing to study it and think about it. And so uh, this is a wedding that's never going to happen. I'd like to think of it as, um, as if you were or I were a Catholic or a Lutheran seminary student, seminary student way back then, and what it would have been like to have been taught the new science, and particularly in the Lutheran setting, I think it's clear that many people would have thought, whatever my teacher's telling me, that's what I'm going to believe about this. But in general, it would have hardly been rational even for the student if it weren't rational for the original uh, thinkers involved in no, really knowing and thinking about the issue to, to accept the view. Interestingly enough, it wasn't as controversial, even in the Lutheran circles, as I mentioned, who were no um, sissies when it came to prosecuting heresy. They could even, Caspar uh, Poyser, I hope I said his name right as a German, uh, uh, son-in-law of Philip Melanchthon, taught the new astronomy at Wittenberg and was never persecuted for teaching it, and yet he spent 10 years imprisoned for holding the wrong view, a divergent view from the Eucharist held by Lutheran theologians. He held to the real presence view of other reformers. So controversy and how to weigh what is really important wasn't something that they were trying to dodge. It wasn't that they were soft on heresy or something like that. They just, in this first generation, could hold a view that it doesn't make much sense, but they didn't want to accept it. The second generation or period that I think is when things get more interesting, uh, not only in this controversy, but later in others, I call it the Toucan Court. You got to stay out on the, the porch with dad sitting out there with you. But um, you can at least have a discussion to see if there's a possibility here. The old science looks less plausible. 
uh, over time as things are developing, and the new science appears less threatening. And it may not be adopted outright, but during this time you'll see what, for lack of a better word, I'm just calling hybrid models, where bits and pieces of a variety of ideas are put together as ways to see if you can save what you consider to be the biblical teaching, while at the same time um, holding on to the parts of the new science that are beginning to think, this is okay, we can do this. And there could be in a dizzying array of these sorts of uh, mixtures. They can be theologically they can be theological only in the history of, of theology. They can scientists have these sort of uh, models where they are mixing and matching pieces. And then, of course, in this case, they can be a mix of both. Let's imagine during this time period, a Lutheran student at the, um, we're calling it a seminary, in Gdansk, Poland, easy for you to say, where they would have been taught a dizzying array of what, for lack of a better word, we'll just call semi-Copernican uh, hybrids and how to think about the Bible and be faithful to their understanding of the Bible while also embracing increasingly this new science. I don't know what it's like here at Southeastern, but at Southern, one of the things professors sometimes find amusing and sometimes it's not so amusing when it bleeds over into some unhealthy uh, an unhealthy attitude students may have against one another are what I call the hallway debates. Students learn about a new idea that's popped out, and they're all over it, and they're debating sometimes hybrids or, you know, any number of new ideas, and they're just all over it, 100% in on it, and they just learned about it yesterday or whatever. And um, I'm imagining that that Polish environment was much the same. The third period, I'm calling it the two can wed okay, let's plan the wedding, but it's going to have certain terms, and since I'm so funny, I'm going to utilize Galileo's idea and call him the proposal, Galileo's proposal. So, it's true um, that there are still some geocentrists around today. It may not, you may not be aware of it. There are some, but it's safe to say that generally, uh, and I'm talking about very educated people who really hold to something akin to uh, what the old view in astronomy was before Copernicus um, came along. But in general, it's, it's safe to say that the old view was put to rest centuries ago. And um, when we get to this period where the new astronomy is considered after multiple generations of configuring, thinking, and advancing the ideas via Kepler and Galileo's contribution and uh, Isaac Newton as the principles. It's interesting to note that in New England, it was Puritan pastors who taught the new science. And the almanac was a very popular way to get these ideas out uh, to the general population. I would think that it was more than rational for a Christian educated in these issues at that time to accept that this was in fact the way things really are and that it's not in conflict with the Bible. The predominant way of explaining it is simply 
largely similarly to that of Galileo that it is in phenomenological terms or simple layman's terms and so on. So how did we get from multiple years or even centuries of debate about these things, how could, what was Galileo's proposal? How did it actually help us? And he uses two letters, or he has two letters. He wrote to a lot of people. There are two letters, one to Castelli and another to the Grand Duchess Christina, in which he talks about this burgeoning conflict. This is before he had actually gone on trial, but it's already controversial. And he's relating and discussing these uh, debates in his day. And it is incredibly helpful. It's true that he largely thinks in terms of science should be the domain of scientists. He makes some very powerful and rather funny points that a theologian may be involved in the queen of the sciences because the science is, or theology deals with the saving of souls and the kinds of things that can't be known any other way than revelation. But theologians aren't necessarily very good geometers or astronomers or physicians or whatever. And therefore, since it's not the main point, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, since the Bible really doesn't even say much about astronomy. It leaves out mention, for instance, he says, of so many of the planets, only mentioning Venus and so on. He says, really, this should be the the province of the scientist. But he also has, once I looked over these things and thought about them, and I'm not the only one who's ever come up with this by any means, but I began to see something that I found helpful for me as a Southern Baptist, and I hope you'll see this as well. And that is what I call his two assumptions and two interpretive steps that I gleaned from these letters. And the first is that we should assume biblical inerrancy, even when facing a scientific and theological controversy. But we shouldn't assume that the interpreters of the Bible are inerrant. So those are two very distinct things, and people may not always be aware of it. He points out rightly that interpretation of the Bible is not always straightforward. Uh, He argues, and this seems very much counter to often what you'll hear in our own circles where, well, the Bible's clear and science isn't. He argued just the opposite. He said, in fact, if we took the Bible straightforwardly, we could run into all sorts of heresies. For instance, God is described, um, if we were to take it literally, as having feet and hands and eyes and forgetfulness. And he said, in fact, these would be misinterpretations of the Bible. And so, this very first assumption is rather surprising. He's not denying that a person can hold the Bible as God's word inerrantly even, but that in fact the interpretations need to be scrutinized. His second assumption is that nature and science cannot disagree because they have the same author. How could it be even possible? And of course this assumption seems incredibly reasonable with the way we've following on assumption one. His first interpretive step then, based on these assumptions, is to think in terms of 
if the science is not proven, and this is tricky, he uses language like demonstrated, but he says, if the traditional, uh, excuse me, if the new science or the controversial science hasn't been proven, let's use that kind of language for our, our circles, then in fact the traditional biblical interpretation is just fine. Just stick with it, we might say. In fact, he said, biblical statements have authority over, quote, any human works supported by only probable reasons. And, and he goes on, such human theories, when apparently contrary to Scripture, quote, must be considered indubitably false, end quote, if not demonstratively proven. His second interpretive step is... And it follows from the other assumptions. However, if the new science is proven, then it requires biblical reinterpretation. It shows we've got our interpretation wrong. It says nothing about our view of the Bible's inspiration. It says nothing about the problem with the science, of course. It shows the problem all along was in our interpretation. It follows from his two assumptions. And in fact... He argues that if we continue to misinterpret the Bible, um, utilizing a false view, a view that the Bible doesn't actually teach, which has been demonstrated now by the new science, we actually make the Bible out to be a liar. And we harm the Bible. And some of his most powerful quotes have to do with what if the unbeliever, the skeptic, we might say, knowing the truth of this new science, that it's demonstrated, and they see us saying things like the Bible doesn't teach it, and then how then will they believe when it says things about salvation and resurrections and the like? So I would argue that looking thereafter, that this conservatism principle with the application sort of in this third phase of the Galileo proposal, actually what has been involved or employed throughout the history of science theology conflicts, for the most part, and even though it's quite messy, I would argue that it was practiced even if it's not the hermeneutic that was preached. In other words, among people of the book, um, like ourselves, we will say, and I think the intuition is right, we interpret science in light of the Bible. We never go the other way. That would be to sell out the authority, or the epistemological authority of the Bible um, to science. But in fact, and I'll give you some examples shortly, I can't find an instance where it's ever been that way. In fact, what I see is that over the time which... And they are usually, thankfully, quite uh, lesser controversies. They always seem big at the time, but they're not always as big as, say, the Darwinian or the Copernican revolutions. Nonetheless, this process has been in play. Um, let me give you some examples that even the most conservative Southern Baptists among us, you may or may not be aware of these things, and my my intention is neither to pronounce they are right or wrong or to even identify, if I don't have to, the, the, uh, what I call popularizing ministries, that is groups that 
bypass seminaries, bypass uh, local churches or denominational confessions. And this has been going on for decades, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they're not primarily a scholarly group where scholars get together and nobody knows what they're about. Their intention is to convince you, the layperson, now through very easy means digitally, of how, why you should hold a view. And of course, there are a range of these competing, what I call popularizing ministries about there. So let me just mention some examples of science theology conflicts where people didn't, were not aware that they were practicing what we're talking about here, that at least that I can find. They would have believed that they were holding the Bible as the way to interpret the science, and yet, in fact, it's become standard among us Southern Baptists, especially as promoted by some of the biggest names in these popularizing ministries. So let me give you some examples. Dinosaurs in the Bible. The first published account of the dinosaurs only about 200 years old. If you go back in the history of the exegesis of Job, you don't find people saying one day we will discover dinosaurs or fossils of dinosaurs. In fact, the whole business of dinosaurs was a long, con- excuse me, fossils was a long controversy. Why do you find what looked like to be impressions of living things inside of rocks? That's nonsense. The pr- pr- that was a big controversy. And the idea that God would let things become extinct, that was a controversy. You say, why? Who cares? Well, they said, why would God create something and then it becomes extinct before any of us would have ever seen it? And how could they get in rocks in the first place? It took a long time before people could accept that they had an organic origin. And then the whole notion of dinosaurs. I'm not trying to tell you whether you can believe they're in the Bible or not. I'm trying to tell you they, the books on them or whatever now aren't because somebody read the Bible and this has always been the way the church interpreted those passages is because people discovered fossils which they came to understand were like pictures or snapshots of the past and in fact that these snapshots were real and that in fact these creatures really did live and because certain assumptions about the Bible then the Bible must speak about them. What about the idea of animal speciation and common descent? Obviously These are ideas that don't get much headway in scientific community biologically until Darwin, and yet they are uh, widespread in certain circles among us today, Uh, not, not necessarily universal descent, common descent, or human Uh, evolution in this sort of way, but at rates and in rather unimaginable um, sorts of events occurring that uh, would stun even the more standard evolutionists. What about the Big Bang? I'm old enough to remember when almost all of these ideas were considered strange or weird, and all we did was think of ourselves as anti-evolutionists. But the idea of the Big Bang is held by virtually everybody, but it's described differently and interpreted and found in the Bible. All of these things are found in the Bible in certain of these groups. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just simply saying the process occurred, and the Big Bang is one of them, even when not always being called the Big Bang, as a, um, a kind of scientific uh, confirmation of creation. 
And I'll just mention one more, the relationship of uh, continental drift, the idea that the earth was originally configured quite differently. That's only about 100 years old that the theory in its major discussion or debate first comes on the scene and the mechanism for it that sort of settles it 1960s or later even with the idea of plate tectonics comes up. We're talking really recent and yet now it's a standard model based on which a lot of people interpret the whole creation flood and other kinds of ideas. Whether these are right or wrong, they all came about because science revealed that they were true and then people, after wrestling and struggling with them, moved on uh, to, to think about them and eventually even accept them, at least in part, and find them in the Bible, right or wrong. So I'm not arguing, and it would be a mistake to argue, that we should think of what I'm calling the conservatism principle or even Galileo's proposal as a kind of prescription. I'm really just saying it is a, an historical description. I'm not at all trying to tell us it would be a completely different talk or conversation for us to have in this conference or another, how we should even think about interpreting the Bible in light of these sorts of conflicts. What I'm trying to do is raise awareness among us as Southern Baptists, as people of the book, number one, to stop accusing others of our very own practice. That would be one thing that would be helpful. We should not be telling people when um, they obviously come to respect a view because they learned about it in science that we never do it. Now, if you're completely unaware of any of the kinds of things that I've mentioned, then you might really be a person who practices something very different, but not the leadership in the majority of these, um, these uh, popularizing ministries today. Secondly, I think awareness of this process, isn't it at least wise for us to reflect upon our own historical practices would it not help us at least a little bit to be aware of this sort of Galileo proposal or historical stages and the like? Wouldn't we at least be better served than just sort of telling ourselves, look at us, we believe in the Bible, and we only interpret science in light of the Bible when we really don't do that? And then thirdly, in many ways, I think for um, my students, when the incredible complexity of trying to work through history of science, philosophy of science, scientific details. You, 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 you think about the theology, the biblical exegesis. It's absolutely overwhelming and, and no one can be an expert in all of it. And it is so difficult that easy answers are not always, um, well, they're not available to us. And in fact, what I tell my students, is it okay for you to say, I don't know? That's not a good thing if you're a pastor or you're a young seminary, maybe an older pastor, but a young um, seminary teacher as I once was. I remember we were told that um, students, and we did surveys, what they really look for is passion. And I learned how to be very passionate even if I figured out what I was going to lecture on the night before. I could be passionate and get great student reviews. In post-cancer, I was lucky to be able to see straight. 
in the midst of chemotherapy. Some could argue that I'm still there. But it's an issue that at the end, it's okay to say, I don't know. I find practicing omniscience pretty hard. And the older I get, the burden of not doing that has become a real blessing to me. In fact, being aware of these historical processes might allow us to take a a deep breath and even relax and be able to say, you know, I just don't know about that, but I have a strong view about this. I've looked at this. I have some expertise in this. I really know a little something about, I don't know anything about that. Here's my views scripturally, etc. Have an intelligent debate, but in the end, actually exemplify some patience in the matter. It may well be you and I won't see some of our most interesting and vexing questions answered in our lifetime. The problem with all of this, of course, is the devil is in the details. And I guess I skipped by mine. Can I go ahead and do Peter's too? I guess I better not. He may not appreciate that. I don't even think he's even in here. He won't let me go back. So I already showed you the devil is in the details, I guess. And history's messy. Being a Christian's messy. I'm not talking about, as uh, Dr. Ashford mentioned, going out into the world or being a Christian. I'm talking about being among us. Uh, It's messy. You shouldn't be in ministry unless you want to get hurt by other Christians. It is a mark of a follower of, of Christ that you still love the church because you love Christ in spite of the way the church is. God is the only hero in all of this. And we are very flawed. Not only are we finite, we are sinful in our worries often about how to sort things through. We're dishonest and, and not always accurate in the things we say about others. So no one said this is easy. Disagreements. Even painful ones will abound, especially for people who are rightly concerned on how to handle the Bible in light of these things. But I would argue for Southern Baptists who do believe the Bible is God's Word, they can sleep at night by being aware of this process and can learn how to do better in the way we um, manage these controversies in our own lifetimes. Thank you.